You're listening to Object of Sound from Sonos, the show where we bring you in tune with the music that shapes our culture. When music lives in the air, it's one thing. But when you know the undercurrents and the ideas that went into a song, when you can feel its weight, it becomes more meaningful. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet and culture critic, and I'll be your guide as we seek a deeper way of listening. So if you're anything like me and have been following the recent news in Texas regarding women's health care and reproductive rights, you probably have also been hearing many people once again talking about things like cutting off parts of the South from the rest of the country, particularly Texas. And this happens often whenever some distressing news happens in Texas or Alabama or Louisiana, places that people, and by that I mean mostly white people in America, deem as easy to extract from the American project as if they don't, in many ways, represent the American project and all of its flaws in addition to all of its greater cultural impact. I think about this because the South, for me, means something different than I believe these people are projecting onto it. America is defined by Black culture, but the South is specifically defined by Black culture. And I found this to be an interesting time for me to be running up against the wall of that frustration once again in an album that has really underlined the complications of this moment for me is Adia Victoria's new album, A Southern Gothic. I followed you into the blue and north into the cold You led me off my land You led me far from home Adia's new album is such a rich and thoughtful historical rendering of the South that, in her typical form, romanticizes what is to be loved about the South without letting it off the hook. For me, Adia Victoria is one of the great classic blues women who understands the blues as something that is not necessarily torturous, but also a way to chart a path towards freedom. I'm gonna blend myself under a magnolia. Adia is a musician, poet, and host of another Sonos podcast, Call and Response, which I love for the deep, layered, considerate conversations about blues and the South and creating in general. Her third studio album, A Southern Gothic, will be released September 17th. That is a week from today. I will say that I have heard it already, and I am so in love with it that I have been talking to people about it as though it's already out. The first single off the album, Magnolia Blues, is out now. Today, Adia and I will talk about the South and the blues, as well as writing and craft, but we'll also discuss her recent efforts to stand up to Spotify and the concept of streaming on the whole. And to close, I'm going to guide you through a playlist of blues women from the South who I think define the many eras of life that I have lived and will still live. So you'll hear from Bessie Smith and Memphis Minnie, among others. You can hear that playlist on mixcloud.com slash Sonos, and we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Adia, how are you? Sneef, I'm doing well. How are you doing, darling? I'm 
I'm all right. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. Are you going out? Are you hitting the road? Are you doing anything? So we have a few gigs lined up. We're actually going to be playing um, Borderlands Festival um, in Buffalo, New York. And then we're playing Exponential Festival in Camden, New Jersey. And then we have our hometown gig where we are opening at the Ryman for Jason Isbell. I saw that. I'm excited that we started by delving into live music because the last photo that I saw of you that really captivated me was a photo of you on stage in July at the Newport Folk Festival Mm -hmm. with Shaka Khan. I don't know if she had just hit the stage or whatever, where you're making a face that is like, this is exactly what I would look like if Shaka Khan was in my presence for the first time in my life. What was it like? What was, I don't know. I was like living through everyone who got to do that, but I was like, I got to hear some behind the scenes details. (laughs) You want the tea? (laughs) Yeah, because I can't, I just, I would freak out. I would lose my mind. Well, I mean, I, I think I did lose my mind for a while there. Oh my God. It, I feel like I'm still coming down from that high. So Allie Russell, fabulous musician. She just released her yes. debut solo record, Outside Child, which is fabulous. So a few weeks before Newport, she'd reached out to our sisterhood squad down here and shared that she'd been invited to curate. They always have like every year the big jam where the one big headliner will come out for a big sing-along. And we weren't sure actually who the headliner was going to be, but you know, all the girls got together and we were figuring out what our parts were going to be. And it was just this really beautiful collective moment of sharing the stage with one another and sharing our art and our songs and our stories with one another. And I think all of us, you know, it was primarily black women, queer people of color on the stage. She wanted to center us. And so many of us said the same thing, that it was the first time that we felt that sense of community on stage, right? Mm-hmm. Because we were we were all used to being the token person of color, queer person, whatnot, you know, that they they keep on on tap. So to have that that moment at Newport where we were on stage and we could look, you know, around us and see someone that we understood knew us and and felt us and, and understood us. And then I didn't learn that it was Shaka Khan that was going to be the the headliner of that moment till the day before. So oh, I, was, I was like freaking out. I called my mom. I was like, mommy, I, I think I'm going to be on stage with Shaka Khan. She was like, what? So I always know something is legit when my mom, because she's no hipster. Like, when my mom <laughs> like freaks out about it, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is really hitting. Like, this is big. But it was just like this this joy, this just, oh my God, like almost manic kind of just release. For so many of us, Newport was the first time that we were performing live again. So it was that, it was Shaka Khan, it was the sisterhood, it was collective, it was that blackness. And we all just reveled in it. And I I looked a damn fool, (laughs) but I do not apologize. The whole experience for me was just this sense of grace, like everything kind of felt slowed down so you could digest it and really be present. And it was half capacity this year, which I really appreciated for health concerns, but it just, it lended itself to this more laid back, chill, intimate uh, environment. And I love that. Yeah, gosh. That was the first time since the pandemic started where I felt like, damn, I can't believe I missed this shit. Right, right, right. 
I, I have to tell you, I like I don't even know where to start with the album. And I think because we're both writers, mm-hmm. I have to start with the writing. Like when I was listening to the album, I was like, I, my brain, I was taking notes like, to get to hear the gears turning and to see an evolution in your like craft as a storyteller, I think particularly was really thrilling. It seems like there's like a vividness and a real palpability to the narratives here. And I'm wondering like, what were you reading when you were working on this album, if anything? Oh man, I was reading quite a bit. So first of all, thank you um, to have you, you know, say that you, appreciated my writing and coming from someone like you, like that's a, that's a moment. So I appreciate that. That makes me feel bona fide right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I was, um, I was reading a lot because there was not a lot else to do. And, you know, I I live with my mother and I was quarantined with her and my, my little sister Hope. And I have a lot of books. So I really just steeped myself in, I was like, I'm here at home in Nashville. I can't leave. So for me, it was really important to really start understanding where I was And so that meant reading a lot about, you know, of course, the South. I was leaning heavily into a lot of literary criticism. I dug deep into this one book called Subduing Satan. It's a book that talks about white Southern male identity in the antebellum period and Reconstruction. I read, um, was the other book was called There Goes a Neighborhood. It was talking about integration in Mississippi and and, and the accounts of like white folks' response to being uh, integrated. I was reading a lot about Eudora Welty's writing, of course, her mm-hmm. fiction, but then also like a lot of books that were written about her. The brilliant Southern scholar Michael Kraling, his book One Writer's Beginning. I was reading her book The Eye of the Story that talks a lot about Southern location, the ways that location has played into uh, Southern literature over the decades and the importance of location for the Southerner, more so than I I believe any other place in America, because there's just so much that's left unsaid and uncovered here. Yeah, I was just doing a lot of reading about Blackness, Southern identity and location. Yeah. I find myself frustrated once again with how I'm seeing the South discussed and portrayed, right? Because whenever something happens in, say, a Texas or Mm -hmm. a Alabama or places that people deem people who do not live in those places useless in the machinery of America when like, <laughs> you know, you get the talk of like, well, let's just separate from the South. Let's leave those people down there. And I, I, I get frustrated because it's often not black folks who say this. Right? Never is. And so the, these people, those people are all that, that means something different to me when I hear it. Right. Like they might, they might think they're imagining like a bunch of white men and red caps, but like, because you and I are black, like we, we have different relationship with the South mm-hmm. and a different understanding that the South is not like any other region is not monolithic. There are many Souths. Right. Um, and I'm, I am mostly wondering what the motivation is for you to kind of keep knocking on the door of fleshing out your capital S South and not entirely romantically, like with all of its complications intact. You know, I, I feel like it, it haunts white folks not just Southerners, but white Americans, you know, the South for them, for white Americans is this um, ne'er-do-well sibling. It's a sibling that just can't get along, the sibling that just, you know, they keep messing up, they've got issues. And basically what it is, like, you make the family look bad, you know. And when people say things about the South, like, just let it go, it, it, it betrays a massive ignorance. Because when you say Southerner, for a lot of people, you're thinking a white person, 
you're thinking, you know, automatically the South stands for white. And it's like the South actually has the largest, you know, concentration of black folk, black history, black culture. Like if you're black in America, chances are like yo ass got here through the South, you know, so when people talk about like, just let the South go, it's like, y'all gonna let us go and just leave us to these people's devices? Like, what the fuck? So I'm so insistent about fighting about the South for two reasons. One, Southern culture is not white Southern culture. If anything, a lot of white Southern culture is an offshoot of us, of black culture. Absolutely, yes. And most times, black Southerners have been here longer than white Southerners have. And built that shit and built that, you know what I mean? We built this shit. Like, we made this shit. Like, everything that you you enjoy about the South— that was our people, like the food, the music, the the attitude, you know, that that draw, that sexiness, like that's that's us. So that annoys me when people try and just tie, make, you know, the same thing, synonymous white and Southern. That's lazy thinking. And also, too, I also find with white people, even like white liberals, instead of taking the time and sitting with the discomfort of knowing that you are the beneficiary of centuries of oppression, even if your family wasn't involved, even if y'all didn't own slaves, even, you know, if you would have voted for Barack Obama a third time, (laughs) you know, (laughs) instead of doing the hard work and thinking about, you know, what can we truly do to create community? How can we begin to really examine the heart of whiteness? The first inclination is to eliminate and purify and, oh, well, you're not the kind of white person that is respectable. So we're going to just cut you off and, and leave it behind. And it's like, no, well, it's a privilege that you're even able to say that. And the reason why the country looks the way it does is because too many quote unquote good white people didn't challenge their Uncle Bubba at the Thanksgiving table. That's why we are now where we're at, because your humanity was not at the point where you could call this out. But now here we are and it's it's bled over to where, you know, it's affecting everybody. And suddenly white people are like, oh, God, we have a problem. It's like, yeah, we've been at a problem because you won't face it. I think it was last season I had Rhiannon Giddens on. We talked about migration. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that people don't understand, and I understand this maybe distinctly as someone who grew up in the Midwest, the South just isn't in the South. Right. I mean, Chicago's like a distinctly Southern city. Right. Detroit is somewhat Southern. Like they're Mm -hmm. in Cleveland, Ohio, because where people moved and then stopped moving. There are elements of the South that do not exist only in the South. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking like finger wagon, shameful elements that people try to project on the South. I mean, like things that bring me immense pleasure, food and language Mm -hmm. and music. You know, funk, though funk was born out of Dayton, Ohio, the grooves within that are distinctly Southern to me. And so there's a narrowing of an understanding of region, I think, that it benefits America to be binary mm-hmm. always. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so there's like an obtuseness or at least a misunderstanding of how, at least with Black folks in the nature of migration, we are in some ways a regionless people. Right. Like I'm a Midwesterner, but but I'm, I, I'm a Midwesterner because this is where like my folks stop moving, you know? Right, right, right. I saw someone refer to Chicago the other day as like Upper Mississippi, you know? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's I true. I mean, truly, if you think about it, especially if you think about the blues tradition. Right. I always say to people, like talking about Americana music and roots music, your roots music is rooted in Black Southern culture, you know? And I, and I think that white people have a hard time recognizing and honoring that, that this isn't just something that you stumbled upon and that you can now appropriate as if no one had claimed it before. It's like, no, this has a home. This has a lineage. It has a culture. And 
I believe that they have not been taught to respect that. We're constantly seen as something that can be conquered or appropriated or gentrified or revitalized because we are a seemingly dead people. But I, I think that they have to think of us that way in order to reconcile, you know, their beliefs about America. Do you think about your new album as a concept album? What was the approach to this conceptually? Because it's so full. For me, after I got done touring behind my second record, we'd been on the road for like 235 days that year. And then I came home with the intention of of writing. And then when I got home, I realized I was like, I'm not sure what I'm even going to write about, right? And I didn't really have any experiences to pull from. I, I don't really enjoy writing about tour or being on the road or the highway. Like I just find that cheesy. And when quarantine hit and being so severed from outside influences and having to go deeper within, you know, the self, because that's all you had, I found myself really speaking to my inner child. Really, I couldn't hide from her anymore. She was still there, like, asking me questions. And a lot of the questions that she was asking of me was, what did growing up in the South do to us? Like, what did growing up in a primarily white Christian school attached to the church, how did that sever you? How did Southern evangelicism sever you? How did respectability and being a good girl, how did that wound you? And I realized that I'm not able to answer all those questions. So a Southern Gothic is is kind of a meditation on Southern culture. And so a lot of it is is written from third-person perspective. I I pictured it as like two girls, like one watching the girl that's troubled and the girl like saying like, this is what happened to her. And then there's moments in the record where the girl gets to speak for herself. And so that was me kind of doing battle with like Southern socialization and then the object that is socialized. And just, I, I don't know, like, what did God do to me? What does what does the South do to me? What did it do to us? And I feel like I could not have written this record if I had not been at home the way that I was at home. I needed to be in one place. I needed to be just sitting in my funk and have no outside distractions. It felt very Tracy Chapman-esque because I think like mm. one of Tracy Chapman's strengths as a writer that I love is her ability to kind of fearlessly move between uh, first person, third person, omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And I, what I loved about this album was just that it felt it felt so reliable all the way through, even though I was very aware that we were getting different speakers at the center of the songs. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's one of the things I love about Tracy too. Is like there is no one narrative to anybody's right. life. Like I ask myself, am I the reliable narrator of my life? Like, have I been so conditioned by outside forces that I can really even speak with true authority? Like it's kind of like Toni Morrison says, when you're, when you're writing, you know, who are you talking to? Right. You know, and I, <laughs> quarantine oftentimes I was like, I'm just talking to myself, <laughs> but <laughs> I, but I was also speaking to the South, right? I wasn't just speaking to, my experiences with humans, I was speaking to the land. I was, you know, there were times when I would feel the most anxious and the only thing that would calm me down would be to take off my socks and shoes and go rock around the backyard or go out to my magnolia tree and touch it. That was my muse in a way. Like I have this massive magnolia tree that grows out in our backyard. And when I look out of my back window, it pretty much obscures everything except for its presence. Like you can't see anything past the limbs and the bloom and the, and the leaves. And 
I thought back, like, what has the magnolia stood for in my life growing up in Spartanburg, South Carolina? Everybody always had a magnolia tree around on their property. And as a little girl, like, that was the place in the summer, like, me and, like, my little sisters, little cousins and them and, like, the neighborhood girls, we would meet to play. And we would, like, play these highly imaginative world-building games where we would just transcend Spartanburg and just go off into space. And so on the one hand, the magnolia stood for me as an emblem of, like, creative freedom. But then on the other hand, the magnolia tree has also been appropriated as a symbol of of Southern white supremacy, Southern myth-making, the moonlight and magnolias. And so I wanted to interrogate that tree. Like, what do you have to say? And so that's where I, I got into like writing Magnolia Blues, like this Black woman that has left the South and all she wants to do is get back home to the magnolia and plant herself underneath it in the dirt and and be rooted and at home in herself. I'm gonna let that dirt do its work. I'm gonna plant myself under a magnolia, a magnolia. I think there's also like real pleasure in the album mm-hmm. or like at least a pursuit of pleasure slash freedom. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how blues women slash black women musicians in general, it's so easy to kind of treat them as only tragic figures. Right. I, I hone in on blues women because I think like, I think of someone like Whitney Houston, even as a blues woman. Yes. You know? Oh yeah. Sister uh, Whitney, like, she was blues. fully a blues woman, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, um, And I think of someone like Aaliyah as a blues woman, right? Like, I think so much has been made of the tragedies of their lives. Yes. That it detracts from the real pleasures that, for me, existed in the music of, a say, Sister Rosetta Tharp or a Big Mama Thornton. You know, like, I recently watched this video of, like, late career Big Mama Thornton in in one of her oversized suits and, like, still, like, she couldn't really move around well, so she was in a chair. But even from that chair... I was like, she's, you know, stomping. And, you know, I was like, this right. is not sad for me. Right. This isn't heartbreaking for me. Right. This is something I'm in awe of seeing. As soon as you get on your feet, again, again, nobody is your I think that there's something in this album that also reclaims the rights to blues as a as a freedom form, which I I mean I think it is right. It's not. Yes. It's never been a, a grieving form. No matter if I'm talking Chicago blues or Delta blues, none of that feels aching to me, except for it's aching only because there is a knowledge of a freedom that maybe is not yet touchable, but still the wish for the freedom is hopeful. Yes. And I think that's maybe what's what's resting your album. The possibility of freedom. Yeah. You know, if if it's been withheld from you, then it's still possible, and that's you know that was the spirit that that touched me about blues women that allowed me to reclaim my black Southern identity and myself and define what the blues meant for me. And, and this is something that I, you know, I, I, I butt heads with, with a lot of like white music journalists. It's like they view the blues as something that is dead and mummified that they can, you know, place in a museum wall and, and say like, this is exactly what it is. And they can also extract from it and then mm-hmm. be the judge of like, what is the blues and who is the blues? And it's like, if you're requiring a one, four, five musical progression to let you know that something is the blues, you don't understand the blues. And the fact is, is most white people don't understand the poetics of the blues. And there is a universal aspect to it, of course. And I think that's why the blues has endured. But there's also an irony to it that if if you ain't coming from the collective, you might not pick up on it exactly. And, you know, for me, like, 
I'm very insistent upon liberating the blues woman from this idea of almost like a mammified character. Absolutely. You know, we kind of think of like the blues is like these big, larger than life, you know, big bosom black woman, like that are always there to tell you like, sugar, it's going to be all right. Like you're going to be okay. Like preach, you're going to, you know. And I, I thought about that a lot. Like just the role that black women have been asked to play and like forced to play. Like from the time my foremothers were like, giving their milk to their slave master's children, you know, and just being forced into this role of like labor mule. And the song for me, ironically, that's the most joyful on this record is Deepwater Blues. Yes, 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 yes. They say a black woman got steel for a spine. She'll carry your weight. She'll carry it fine. She'll think of you for she'll think of herself. She don't mind up being on the mind of nobody else. I sat down and I wrote that after the um, Democratic National Convention where Michelle Obama spoke. And then I got on Twitter and there was all of these like blue checkmark liberals talking about like, Michelle Obama's going to save America. Yeah, or there it is. Or people were saying like, after Georgia, we need to clone Stacey Adams. There it is. There, yeah, there it is. You need to what? God forbid that you should clean up the mess that your people made, that you need to hire some black woman to come and scrub up your shit, that we always need to be available to save America. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I don't love this country. I don't love America. I don't, I don't have hope for America. I think that white people will destroy it before it could be what it, what it pretends to be. It will be ripped apart. So I wanted to write uh, Deepwater Blues. What about the black woman who does not care to save you? What about the black woman who is self-interested? How about the black woman who is trying to to look out after her own skin? Because you're not looking out after her. And I started reading about the Mississippi flood that happened like 1927 when Bessie Smith broke out with Backwater Blues. When it rained five days and the skies turned dark at night When it rained five days and the skies turned dark at night. I wanted to write this song for all these black women who have had to clean up so many messes because they had no other choice. Maybe the reason why we have to save you is that's the only way that we can survive is through you. But I wanted to write a black woman who was completely unconcerned with anybody other than herself. Like, no, save yourself. And no, I'm not your life raft. I don't give a shit about you. Like, you could literally drown. I'm self-interested and I'm going to survive. I will not die to keep you alive. Will you talk about your Sonos podcast, which I have enjoyed a great deal? So call and response, that was an opportunity that kind of fell on my lap after hosting one of the Sonos radio hours last fall. And I I guess they liked the cut of my jib, the way I flapped my gums, because they were like, hey, we want to do a new music culture podcast and um, we'd like you to host it. So Jimmer Rose Brown and Scott Newman, they reached out to me and brainstormed with me. And I was like, you know, I really don't want to be a DJ of just like, here's like the latest, you know, from this week. Where my mind is at is I'm thinking about the South, but I'm also thinking about the ways that the South, our music, our people have touched everything. Like we have literally watered the roots of American music. And so I loved having the opportunity to bring these guests on from Kamasi Washington, Jamila Woods, Casey Lehman, Brandi Carlisle. Like most of the people are from the South, but there are a few that aren't. But I wanted to 
center the South in a way to show like the contributions of Black Southern folk, the way that they have influenced everybody and how the South is still so relevant. You know, that saying like, as the South goes, the country goes. And so it just felt super timely to me to really express what the South even meant to me. And it was the first time that I guess I felt truly an authority on the South as a black girl. Like I'm not included in what people think of what the South is, what it's packaged to be. So I've, I've just really enjoyed call and response. It's based in the blues. It's based in the South and it's just been church for me. It's been holy. Right. Speaking of audio and podcasts, I, it feels like a good note to close on is something that you did recently that got such warm attraction and attention your open letter to Spotify, right. which you posted on social media in early August. I really loved how you brought attention to the level of labor it takes to be a musician, to create songs, to create albums, and turning that back and calling out the streaming industry for what it's done to the musicians' livelihoods. Right. And so for those who are like not hip to what you wrote, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what drove you to address Spotify in that way and what the response has been like in the aftermath. Sure. Yeah, of course. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when my team told me that Spotify had chosen my track, Magnolia Blues, as like their folk song, I don't know, some playlists, you know, they were all like really excited and they're like, yeah, exposure. And, you know, you're taught to really court these streaming companies, to really court, you know, their business and their affection and their attention, you know, um, and I've never done that. And so when they 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 recognized me, I was like, well, you know, I could do the usual thing of like, thanks so much, Spotify, or I could like really contextualize this moment and really come clean with the fact that the reason why so many musicians have to still have jobs, like people at my my level of the game still have to have jobs because folks don't buy records. Well, why don't folks buy records? Well, because they can just stream things. So it was not even about Spotify. It was almost a comment on our appetites and the ways that they have rendered so many industries unsustainable. Like we cannot sustain the way that you are training people to consume our work. And I remember the the CEO of Spotify, like last year, he was like chastising musicians saying like, you can no longer right. put out records once every three or four years. Like you have to be putting out content all the time. Da, 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 da. It's like, first of all, my art's not content. Second of all, my art, my blues are not a means to an end. They are the end. And third of all, mm. fuck you. The reason why I have to stay on tour is because touring is my bread and butter because you have broken the system. And so I kind of want to just pause and, and talk about the way that labor is, one, compensated, but also recognized. And what do we value? And how are we going to move forward out of this moment, you know, after COVID? Are we going to go back to our old appetites and entitlements? Or are we really going to stop and think about how can we foster a community that can sustain human life? Because the way that we've been doing it, we don't have much time left. And so I wanted to call out Spotify. It's like you are in a position where you shape so much of our culture and so much of our ideas and the ways that people experience this life. It's like, what are you going to do with that privilege and platform? Are you just going to pass the buck and just get along to go along? I think I know what the answer is. (laughs) (laughs) I think Victoria, it's always really, truly always so good to talk to you. Like I learn a lot and I feel like I'm in the midst of a sermon often. I do hope that your new album sends people running towards a deeper understanding of place, no matter what place means for them. It is mm. really stunning. It's really beautiful. I can't wait for people to hear it. Hey, cheers. Thank you. That was, it's an honor to be here with you today, Hanif. Adia Victoria's latest album, A Southern Gothic, will be out on September 17th. The first single off the album, Magnolia Blues, is out now. If you're in the New York tri-state area, 
You can catch her next weekend performing at the Exponential Music Festival in Camden, New Jersey, and the Borderlands Music Festival in Aurora, New York. And, of course, check out her podcast, Call and Response, also from our friends at Sonos. And now for a final thought. Talking to Adia always reminds me that the blues tradition is alive and well. And Adia made this point that I kind of want to expand on a bit. And it is that for so many people who I read, who I listen to, the blues gets addressed as though it's something that's kind of bronze and amber, that everything that it has to offer has already been offered and there's no way to further the sound or cultural relevance or form that it has existed in. But I actually think that is thinking about the blues in a very narrow way. I think about this with hip hop too. For so many forms of Black culture, the imagination that people have for that culture begins and ends at the music. But you can't talk about hip-hop without talking about graffiti or breaking or DJing or all of these cultural elements that actually predate hip-hop as a recorded musical art form. And I don't think you can talk about the blues without talking about elements of church or elements of making sound with your body or, most important to me, elements of oral storytelling. I know specifically Black folks who have maybe three stories total, but they can tell them in so many different ways, it is like they are sketching out a book. There's a man who hangs outside a corner store in my neighborhood who I see multiple times a week, which means that every time I see him, he wants to tell me something. And when he tells me something, it's often like the thing he told me five to seven days ago. And he maybe knows this. And because he knows this, he tells it to me in a slightly different way. He adds a detail that's not the same as it was before. He adds a little coloring that wasn't there before. This reinterpretation of our lived existence is, for me, the blues. It's understanding that we're still here, not in any better condition than we were before, sometimes worse. But because we're still here, we still have some telling to do for anyone willing to listen. That feels to me like a blues impulse. And one person who I always think about when this deliberation about the blues comes up is Big Mama Thornton. You ain't nothing but a When I think about Big Mama Thornton and folks like Diamond Teeth Mary, Memphis Minnie, and Bessie Smith, I think about Black women who witnessed a lot of grief firsthand and secondhand. Big Mama Thornton watched Johnny Ace accidentally kill himself playing with a gun. These things live in the body and they need to be extracted in a way that is not only traumatic. This is why I understand the blues as music of resilience and freedom, because I believe in the lives of particularly Black blues women as something robust and multitudinous that is not only responding to what has been done to them or what they have seen. It might be easy to reduce these folks to that. But Big Mama Thornton, for example, was playful and funny and had an interest in upending gender. And so I think when we consider blues as at its core storytelling from the minds and hearts of people who have witnessed a great deal and continue to stretch towards freedom, that tradition, with any luck, will never die. Tell me why your tail ain't gonna be a new 
Listening to Object of Sound from Sonos. Big thank you to our guest this week, Adia Victoria. To hear all the music in the full version of the show, you can listen on Sonos Radio or find us at mixcloud.com/sonos. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, go ahead and rate it and share it with your friends. This is a communal thing, music discovery. So tell us what you like about the show and what you're listening to. Let us know your thoughts in an email at objectofsound@sonos.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Sonos Radio and at Object of Sound. This show is produced by Work by Work, Scott Newman, Gemma Rose Brown, Mayari Sharina Hong, Kathleen Ottinger, and by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The show was mixed by Sam Baer. Extra gratitude to Joe Dawson and Saida Blount at Sonos. I'm always talking about music online on Instagram and Twitter at Neef Muhammad. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being a part of the show. Mm-hmm.